The Lamanite converts of the sons of Mosiah are brought so low in their repentance that they will not even take up arms in their own defense. In the process, they teach us how to transcend the fall of Adam. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me again for Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson is Alma chapters 23 through 29. They never did fall away. And let me wish you all a happy 4th of July. And for those of you in the United States, this is happy Independence Day, although most of you will listen to this after Independence Day. You may hear in the background as I'm speaking, if the microphone picks it up, uh, some of the explosions of fireworks that are still going on where I live. It's a very meaningful holiday for us here in the United States, and as I'll explain, it it should be a meaningful holiday around the world. It's especially appropriate for uh, for this lesson, for the subject matter of this lesson, dealing with, as it does, religious freedom. Uh, I don't have any questions to respond to this week. I do have. I did get some questions from you. Uh, most of your questions are expressing concern as to why I uh, I missed a couple of weeks on my episodes, and I'll have more to say about that next time. Uh, but for now, I, I'm, I'll just say everything's fine, and I'm glad to be catching up. But I do love to interact with my listeners in that way. So if you would like to send a question to the program, I'll, I'll be glad to answer it, uh, especially if it's relevant to the lesson, but not always. I'm happy to answer a question about anything that requires some sort of scriptural insight. Send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. So we begin in chapter 23 this week. Uh, with the news, if you remember that the thing that happened the very last was that Aaron had converted the king over all of the Lamanites. And so the sequence of events with the mission of the sons of Mosiah was first Ammon went in and he converted one of the kings of the Lamanites. His name was Lamoni, but it turned out later he was a lesser king and there was a king, his own father, that was above him. And Aaron later preached to him and converted him as well. So here in chapter 23, we learn the aftermath of that conversion, which is that the king of of all the Lamanites, he decrees that there is religious freedom throughout the land. And with this freedom comes the ability of Ammon and his brothers and and all of their uh, fellow missionaries to travel anywhere that the king of the Lamanites has jurisdiction and preach in synagogues and homes in the streets without any sort of impediment and being cast into jail again. And I imagine the, the events in this chapter actually take many years to accomplish, but in relatively uh, quick succession, the verses describe the entire people of the Lamanites being converted to the Lord. So I don't know whether Alma and his brothers called additional missionaries from among the Lamanites to labor with them, or whether they personally converted everyone, which seems like it would have been almost impossible. But in any case, they have converted the entire lands of the Lamanites. Now, there are a couple of exceptions to this. Uh, One of the exceptions are the people called the Amalekites. And as I mentioned last time, we have an interesting theory about who the Amalekites are. Uh, If you'll remember in the first couple of chapters of the book of Alma, this is after the sons of Mosiah have already left on their mission to the Lamanites, then Alma has to deal with an uprising. First, he deals with an antichrist, a man named Nehor, who founds a religion. We're going to just briefly cover Nehor because he's relevant to today's lesson. 
His religion is based on a couple of teachings. One, that priests should be popular. In other words, a priest is, it's okay if a priest becomes wealthy uh, by virtue of his preaching. And secondly, that everyone will be saved. And, and uh, one of the corollaries to that is that nobody needs to repent. And so the Nihors, they're infamous for having this doctrine that repentance just isn't part of their gospel. So the Nihors, Nihor himself didn't last very long, but he made one powerful convert. He had one powerful disciple, a man named Amlicai. And the Nephites actually voted. They had a referendum on whether they would make Amlicai king or not. And when Amlicai lost the vote, then he and his followers rebelled against the judges that the rest of Nephite society had put into place. And they lost, the Amlicites lost that battle, but then it became clear that they had anticipated their loss and they had already arranged, they had prearranged an alliance with an army of Lamanites. So as soon as they lost the battle, then they went and got their allies, the Lamanites, and came in and tried to attack the Nephites again. Now, the Nephites were preserved by the power of God, and uh, specifically, Alma was leading the armies at, the, at that time. So he, he went up against the Amlicites, but uh, he didn't go up against the, in the subsequent battle because he was wounded against the Amlicites plus the Lamanites. And after that second battle, the Lamanites were defeated again. The Amlicites sort of disappeared. And uh, for reasons that I discussed last time, I believe that the Amlicites later became known in the Book of Mormon as the Amalekites. As you know, in Hebrew languages, the, the vowels are sort of understood. The, what we have in ancient texts written in Hebrew are just consonants, interestingly enough. And so Amlicite, if you take that C and you're willing to recognize that it might have been originally considered a hard K, that's an English uh, that that's the sort of conflation that you would only make in English, but in in Hebrew you would if you once you make that concession, then it's really easy to say that the two names Amlicite and Amalekite are really the same name. They would be spelled the same in Hebrew, and the Amlicites and the Amalekites would actually be spelled the same as well. So for that reason and others that I talked about last time, I believe the Amalekites and the Amlicites were the same people. Why is this important? Well, Amlici was an acolyte or a follower, an an adherent of the doctrine of Nehor. And he took this doctrine with him and he he carried it to the Lamanites. And it seems to have found a fertile ground there in which to grow. The, The Lamanites already had one group of dissenters from the Nephites, you might say. And uh, these Nephites, you'll remember that in the book of Mosiah, we dealt with a a sort of an expeditionary group or an offshoot group of Nephites. They traveled to the land of Nephi, which they called the land of their first inheritance. And they there asked the Lamanites if they could live, and they did for three generations. They had three kings, Zenith, Wicked King Noah, and Limhi. You'll remember all of these stories. So the when they were returning, they returned in two groups. The people of Noah, they stayed behind, and, and eventually King Noah was killed, and his son Limhi sort of governed them, but they felt like they were a, a government in exile because by this time they were brought into bondage, and all they wanted to do was escape and return to Zarahemla. Before that happened, an, another group of more religious people left, and that was led by Alma the Elder. 
Now, you remember that Alma the Elder in his travels was accosted by a man who had formerly led the, the wicked priests of King Noah, and his name was Amulon. And they had snatched up some 24 daughters of the, of the Lamanites, and this had caused some conflict among the Lamanites and the Nephites at, at some point. And they became the Amulonites. And so these wicked priests of evil King Noah, they, they brought their terrible doctrines with them. And if you want to know what those doctrines are, you can go back and study the, the sermon that Abinadi powerfully delivered to rebuke them for all their words. One of the weaknesses of their doctrine was that they believed in the scriptures, and yet they, their conduct was such that it was condemned by the very scriptures which they purported to believe. And so they had this internal inconsistency in their doctrine. Nevertheless, they gained a lot of strength. They, got, gained, they didn't find it too hard to convince uh, Lamanites to join their cause. So the Amulonites were already a powerful dissenter group from the Nephites. And then when they were joined by the Amalekites who brought with them this new doctrine of Nehor, then the, it seems like the Amulonites were quick to convert to that as well. And they were also, I think, very successful in gaining converts among the Lamanites. And it seems like those who believed in the doctrine of Nehor among the Lamanites geographically separated themselves. We have some evidence of that here in chapter 23. So I'm going to tell you briefly the different lands that were converted. The, the Book of Mormon talks about these lands, and I think it's important that it does. Uh, I'm going to bring up one other thing that I've talked about in the past, and that is the tribes among the people, the descendants of Lehi. You'll remember that Jacob first described this, but then it's described later by Mormon, and it's also described in the Doctrine and Covenants. The descendants of Lehi divided themselves into seven tribes, and four of the tribes were sort of governed by Nephi's philosophy, and three of the tribes were governed by Laman's philosophy. And we see further evidence of this here, and we have some uh, enlightenment here in this chapter if we know that. So first, the land of Ishmael. And Ishmaelites, the three, the three tribes of the Lamanites were Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites. And the first land that was converted, you remember Ammon went into the land of Ishmael, over whom was the king uh, Lamoni positioned. And so uh, Ammon converted them. The land of Ishmael was converted. You'll remember the land of Midoni. That's mentioned next here in chapter 23. That's where Aaron and his brethren ended up, and they had been imprisoned there. But eventually they went back, and with religious freedom in place, then they were able to convert that land as well. The land of Nephi. This is where the king over all the land had his government seat. And so we can assume this is where the tribe of the Lamanites were, were centrally located. The city, and this, incidentally, this is where Limhi, Zenith, and King Noah, this is where they had their capital. So they sort of rebuilt the city. They convinced the Lamanites to leave it. They rebuilt this city and its sister city, Shilom, which is mentioned next. Those were the two cities of these Nephites in exile when they, when they took their expedition back to the land of their first inheritance. And Shemlon, which is mentioned next, that was where the Lamanites who dealt with these Nephites in exile. That's where they lived. So all of these lands that we've been discussing in the last book or so are now being mentioned as being Nephite converts. And we're also sort of ticking the boxes of which groups of Lamanites are getting converted. We, have, we already have the Ishmaelites and the Lamanites. Now next we have the city of Lemuel. So all three tribes of Lamanites, we can now say, it seems like, They've all been converted. Who's left? 
the only people that are left are these two groups, and they're both recent groups of Nephite dissenters who have carried, either carried the philosophy of Nehor to the, to the Lamanites or else embraced that philosophy and found uh, and tried to spread it among the Lamanites. So there are lands where the Lamanites are not converted, but it does seem to me, just reading, just by my reading of this, since all three tribes of Lamanites have been converted, it seems to me that the vast majority of Lamanites have found their way into the gospel. Finally, the city of Shimnalam is mentioned, and this is the only mention in the Book of Mormon, so we don't know much about what's going on. So a couple of a couple of things. First of all, as I mentioned, it seems like the bulk of the Lamanites have been converted at this point. Secondly, it seems like each tribe of Lamanites only has maybe two, maybe three cities where they uh, are located, where they've spread to. And so in spite of the centuries that have elapsed since Lehi's family reached the new world, reached the promised land for them, they haven't spread to the point where they have, they're a continent-spanning civilization. They're still relatively localized in one geographical area. A person could travel it in just a matter of a few weeks from the southernmost tip of the Lamanite lands to the northernmost tip of the Nephite lands. Uh, it is just a few weeks' travel, which is through dense jungle. And in one case, the, uh, the entire civilization of Nephites made that in, in, just, a, in just eight days from... Uh, that was Alma leaving from the city of Helam. Later on, the city of Helam is mentioned as well. And this is where Am, uh, I'm sorry, Alma the Elder, they built, he and his followers, when they separated themselves from the Nephites in exile, they built the city Helam in the wilderness, thinking, we can't find our way to Zarahemla, we might as well build a city. And that's when the Amulonites found them, and they put them in bondage. When Alma and his people escaped, Amulon stayed in the city of Helam. And so that becomes a very wicked city because it's these Nephite dissenters who rule it. One of the final verses of this, uh, this lesson is that once you've known the light and you fall away, it becomes much more difficult to come back to it. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So that gives you a, uh, an intro in today's lesson. It lets you know that we, we kind of can guess. We have enough information here in chapter 23 to guess that the vast majority of the, Neph uh, the Lamanites have been converted. And the Nephites are obviously already converted. So who's left? Just a few dissenters. It leads to some very interesting questions, as we'll discuss. Uh, one more thing I want to discuss in chapter 23, and that's verse 18. It says, uh, when describing the Lamanites, now that they've been converted to the gospel, it says, the curse of God did no more follow them. And I want to talk about this curse a little bit, because I do believe that this curse is either misrepresented or misunderstood. I know that when I was a child, what I was taught about the curse of God that is mentioned about the, the Lamanites um, is something that I no longer believe. So I think the most Latter-day Saints probably believe and have been taught that this is a racial difference. This is basically a skin of blackness, and it's even described as a skin of darkness in the book of 2 Nephi. So if you go to 2 Nephi chapter 5, verse 21, it describes the original curse. Uh, and we there are a few other places in the uh, Book of Mormon where we are given the very, very clear idea that this is a racial difference, a skin, uh, the skin, the color of the skin of the Lamanites has changed. And until very recently, I would not have even dared to challenge that 
reasoning because it is written clearly in the Book of Mormon. However, there are also clear contradictions to that idea. And I've been undertaking recently a study about uh, the ideas of a man named Marvin Perkins. And this man has the approval of the church. In fact, uh, you may remember the, the episode not too long ago when a general authority in Sweden was, and I won't mention his name, but he publicly left the church. He felt like he'd been deceived uh, about some doctrines of the church that basically just weren't discussed very much, and nobody had felt that it was their duty to teach him some doctrines, and one of them was around racial differences, and there were a few others. And uh, so this general authority left, and it, and it left quite a controversy in Sweden. The church had quite a crisis of faith in that area, as you may imagine, and one of the men that they sent, one of the people that they sent, they said men and women, to, to talk to the members there and sort of listen to them and then also teach them uh, what they felt like they had been missing in this whole episode. One of the people that they sent was a man named Marvin Perkins, and he's a black member of the church who converted not long after the revelation on, the, on black men in the priesthood. And he was told from the time he was an early convert, before he was a convert, that black people had been cursed and that uh, he should still join the church anyway because there would be more blessings for him than there would be outside, but he couldn't be exalted and that he had been less valiant in the pre-existence. Now, this is not, you may, it may surprise you to know that this is not doctrine of the church. I hope it doesn't surprise you, but if it does, then I, I, I think I should, should tell you, I think it's incumbent on me to tell you, this is not the doctrine of the church. And I think some members of the church find justification for these ideas in the Book of Mormon. And Marvin Perkins has some very interesting interpretations of the scriptures around race in the Book of Mormon. You can look his uh, speech up on YouTube. It's called Race and the Priesthood. And this, because the church sent him, I, I haven't seen this become doctrine uh, of the church in the sense that it's been endorsed by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. Nevertheless, his ideas are gaining a lot of acceptance, and I think um, rightfully so. The more I study it, the more convinced I become, and the more the Spirit speaks to me that this there's something here worth listening to. So I'm going to give you a brief exposition to the ideas of Marvin Perkins and another man named Ethan Sprout, who wrote a... Uh, so. Marvin Perkins has a video called Race and the Priesthood. Ethan Sprout has uh, an article that is entitled Skins as Garments in the Book of Mormon. So you can Google either of those and, and uh, do some more research. One of the first ideas, and you, if you've read the Book of Mormon and you're familiar with the scriptures on this topic, you'll have a number of objections, and they're all addressed in either one of these uh, resources that I've given you. But the first idea is that the curse that came upon the Lamanites was never a change in their skin color. And that just sounds contradictory to the scriptures that, we, that you and I have both read where it talks about them taking upon themselves a skin of blackness. One of the main uh, points that Marvin Perkins, that Brother Perkins brings up to support his thesis is that when, he, when those from a Hebrew culture are talking about being black or having a skin of blackness, it's metaphorical. Uh, and, and as support, he, he lists various scriptures in the Old Testament. One of them is Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 21, when Jeremiah says, I am black. And in the, in the King, James, 
King James Version, it reads, I am black. But in modern translation, it reads, I mourn. They don't even bother to translate uh, in an interlinear fashion. Because if you translate interlinearly, you get, I am black. But if you take the meaning of the phrase, you get, I mourn. So this, this phrase, I am black, or blackness, meant mourning. It meant an emotional state. And the Nephites used it, uh, Brother Perkins argued. They, they called the skin of blackness or of darkness to symbolize the distance from God. So we know, and it is the doctrine of the church, that the curse of the Lamanites was their distance from God. But there, are, there have been uh, probably a majority of people, I would say, a majority of members of the church who have long considered that the mark of the curse, it wasn't the curse itself, but the mark of the curse was the color of the Lamanite's skin. And Brother Perkins takes issue with this idea in a lot of interesting ways. And uh, Brother Sprout also writes, when it, set, when it talks about the skins of the Lamanites, uh, he, he mentions, he points out the fact that it's actually ambiguous when the Lamanite skins are mentioned, whether it's talking about their actual skin or their clothing, because they wore skins as clothing. They wore loincloths made of leather. And I wish I could do justice to either of these resources um, because they're, I think they're very important for modern Latter-day Saints to read, but I, I simply don't have the time to do it. One scripture I will point you to is 2 Nephi chapter 30, verse 7, where it talks about scales of darkness falling from the eyes of the Lamanites. So this, the, the scales of the darkness are actually the darkness under which the Lamanites labor. And it And in chapter 26 of today's lesson, you can actually see a couple of examples. If you look in chapter 26, verses 3 and verse 15, you see that there were the the people of the Lamanites, who are later called the people of Ammon, they are brought from darkness to light. There's no mention of their skin color, even though we have already been informed that the curse of God did no more follow them. Another supporting example is in Alma chapter 55. The first part of that chapter deals with the desire to send an infiltrator into the camps of the Lamanites. And the Nephites actually make a search if, to see if they can find someone who is descended from Laman among them. The fact that they had to search means that it wasn't immediately obvious when you look at somebody to know whether they were a Nephite or a Lamanite. There wasn't a, a, a racial difference in the sense that you could look at somebody and just tell. Uh, Another point that I would make is that when the Book of Mormon talks about how the truth is available to all, black and white, bond and free. Now, this is probably the most interesting interpretation, and I I fully accept it, because once you think about this, uh, I think think you're going to find it as interesting as I do. We have to remember that when we in modern, the modern world, use the words black and white, those are words whose meaning has only recently come into existence. Uh, only in the past couple, couple hundred years have they taken those words taken on the meanings that they have today. Uh, black meaning people descended from African blood and having skin that is similar in color to those that come from Africa. And white meaning those, and in, contra, in direct contrast to the skin, the color of an African skin, then white means descended from European blood. Now, that is a modern interpretation, and it would have had absolutely no meaning to someone living at the time of the Book of Mormon. They did not have the races that we uh, currently define as being 
the people, the colors of people around the world. They didn't have a global society the way we have today. And so therefore, what they would have described would have been the spiritual status of the, of the respective people involved. And as the theory goes, this, this language of darkness and light being transferred through the mind of Joseph Smith into modern terms uh, would have been easy to translate into a racial interpretation when such an interpretation wasn't present in the original. So anyway, I feel like I've taken enough time on this topic, but I think it's there's a lot of fertile ground here for study. And uh, if you're interested to understand, if you've always, if it's always sort of bothered you that the Nephites uh, would have had a racial component to their society, and it seemed a little bit too much of a modern tilt on the way that they would have felt about each other, then uh, I, I recommend the work of uh, Brother Marvin Perkins and Brother Ethan Sprout to you. In any case, I feel like uh, one of Brother Perkins' messages is very apropos for all of us, which is that conflicting messages are part of our test. So we don't always get to know everything uh, perfectly clearly, and it's not always easy to believe in the gospel. But one of the reasons that he held on, even though he felt like people were uh, in the, the people of Christ, the members of the church that he was going to join, he felt like they were being racist against him was because he had been given a spiritual witness, and he knew that the church was true, and he didn't know all the answers yet. And he's, uh, he's worked very hard over the intervening decades to develop the theories that he has today, and they've, they've provided a lot of comfort to many people. So getting to chapter 24, we now see that the, uh, the, the Amulonites, they're still living in the land of Helam, and these are the descendants both spiritually and physically from the wicked priests of Noah. So they, they, these wicked priests, they have a lot of spiritual descendants, meaning converts, to, the, to their original wicked philosophy of simple hedonism, and now it's been mixed with the philosophy of Nehor, the land of Jerusalem, which is been we, it's figured into previous lessons. This is where the Amalekites live, and this is where they, uh, they ended up, and they've gained a lot of Lamanite converts as well, and these Lamanites are more wicked than any other Lamanites because they are so close to the, the Amalekites. And now we have this interesting phenomenon because, uh, because the Lamanites have been converted so completely, and because the, those who followed the Amalekites and the Amulonites have resisted the gospel so completely, there is now a geographical separation between those who are faithful and those who are not those who choose to believe in God and those who choose to believe in Nehor's interpretation. And because there is a geographical separation, they are ripe for armed conflict. Anytime you can draw a line, a physical line, rather than a spiritual one, then you're in danger of having actual violence erupt because people can say those on the other side of the line are going to harm us or they have harmed us. And we know from the history of the Lamanites that they keep going back to this idea that uh, at some point, Nephi harmed Laman, and therefore they are the heirs to this centuries-long struggle that began before any of them were born. And they'll never give it up. They'll always fight for it. They'll, it will always be the cause of bloodshed because the Lamanites are the victims. And soon it happens that not only is violence threatening, but it becomes an actual reality. Those Lamanites who refused to accept the gospel and continued to believe in the wicked doctrines of Nehor and of Amulon, they are now mobilizing against those Lamanites who have converted. So, into this context, we, we have a great character emerge whose name is Anti-Nephi Lehi. 
He's one of the other sons of the father of King Lamoni, the king over all the land, who dies in this chapter. And he leaves the rule over all of his lands to his son Anti-Nephi-Lehi, who receives a new name, and this is his new name. We never know the old one. Anti-Nephi-Lehi gives this amazing, amazing speech. It's a call to action requiring more courage than probably any of the speeches I've ever read. It's one of the great motivational talks, I think, of all time. And it takes so much courage. And this is the content. This is the basic summary of what he says. He says, My people, the people who used to be Lamanites, look at us. We have now repented. We have so much cause to thank our God. And we have so much to repent for, or we had so much to repent for. We have now been forgiven. We have committed so many murders. Look at what a bloodthirsty people we are. Look at how darkened our minds were because of the beliefs that we'd been handed down, that because our forefather Laman was mistreated by Nephi, that we had the right to murder and enslave the Nephites and torment them and persecute them and follow them all the days of our lives. And we, because we committed so many murders, we had a very, very difficult road to, to repentance. But now we've been forgiven. And the, the metaphor for this was that our swords are bright. In other words, our swords are no longer covered in blood. They're now bright and clean. God has wiped our sins away. And what he says is, look, we now suffer the threat of violence, but our swords are bright. And in order to keep them bright... We have to refuse to stain them with blood, even in self-defense. So this is a very, very interesting question now that comes up for all of us in modern times today as we read this. Because what they do is they, they choose to bury their swords so that they will ever remain bright. They won't be tempted to take them up in self-defense. The Lamanites make a commitment to nonviolence that survives, that is that is powerful even in the face of their own death and the death of their families. I can imagine as a man being willing to lay down my own life, but can I imagine being willing to send my family out to die as well? Their commitment is so strong that nothing can shake it. No threat of violence can shake their commitment to repentance. Now, what I wanted to say about this is this. There are plenty of instances in the scriptures, especially in the Bible, you, you can hardly go a few pages in the Old Testament without reading, that the, the Israelites had been charged to use violence either in defense or even in conquest of the land of promise. God had sanctioned this violence, and he had also said elsewhere in the, in the uh, Bible, thou shalt not kill. And the way that we've translated that has, as kill is not precisely accurate, thou shalt not murder. In other words, there are, there's some killing that is sanctioned, that is okay by God, by God's word, which is killing in self-defense. If you have to defend yourself, then that is justified. If you have to put a murderer to death, then that is justified. But killing someone for personal gain, that is murder. And that, that distinction was always made. And even today, violence in self-defense, violence in defense of your nation, is perfectly justified under God's law. However, you also don't have to go very far in the Old Testament until you find a prophecy of a time when men will beat their their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, implements of war will become implements of agriculture. And as be, that is because there is simply no need to study war. There is no more war. Peace will reign. And when 
that is a millennial time. This, this description is obviously a description of a millennial existence. It describes a time when the world has transcended a telestial law and is now living a terrestrial law. And the terrestrial law is one that does not include war. There's no need for people to go to war because the resources are, are abundant, because God is more in control, and for various other reasons that some of which we cannot foresee, there's simply no more war. Now, as we'll learn, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they followed through with their resolution to not raise their arms, their swords, their weapons, even in defense of their own lives. And so the Lamanites come upon them and begin to kill them, and they choose to die. As we examine this event, the, the pacifism, which it would be called today, of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, then we have some important questions to answer. Uh, the the question that came up for me first is, what does God want as far as violence goes from me? What is appropriate? Were they right, in other words? Were the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, were they right about laying down their weapons of war? And sort of what I, come up with, what I have come up with is this. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's made a choice to transcend. The only words that come to my mind is sort of a vibration you might have heard this described in the past that uh, that people resonate to different frequencies, and and that's I think a, the gospel has its analogies in that because we have we live today in a telestial existence and we live a telestial law, and there will come a time when we live in a terrestrial existence and we live a terrestrial law, and God has said that no one can abide a, a celestial glory unless they can live a celestial law. And so, if you think about these in the in terms of in modern parlance, what you might call a vibration, that anti-Nephi-Lehi's had simply decided that they no longer could vibrate uh, on a telestial level anymore. They had to make an upgrade. They had to change themselves and transcend their world and change the nature of the world they lived in. Even though, or I should say, change their own nature, even though the world around them continued on a telestial level. They transcended it. And in that day, they became terrestrial people. This is my opinion. And they continued so. Uh, as we'll see, they, they migrated. They faced repeated threats uh, of the same nature. And they transcended them each time because they had already become a terrestrial people. They were vibrating on a different frequency. They could never go back. Uh, I'll give you another example, and this is uh, I, this is something I have to be careful with because it's just an idea in my head. So as I talk, uh, please hear me out before you make a judgment on what I'm saying. But I wanted to bring up the, uh, as, I, as I was studying this, for me came up the idea of eating meat. Now today, as July 4th, one of the ways that people celebrate this is they, they go out and they have a barbecue, and I did this too. I love to eat meat, but as I study the scriptures, I see plenty of evidence that the time will come that there will be a millennial existence, millennial conditions will reign upon the earth. The lamb, for example, will lie down with the lion. And what that tells me is that the predatory nature of the lion has been removed. The lion, presumably now, has become a, an herbivore. It eats grass or fruit or whatever the lion will eat. It won't be lambs anymore. The lion has no need to hunt. The nature of the lion has changed. Now, he, Hopefully this isn't a surprise to you, but humans are predators as well. And the lamb has as much to fear from a person as it does from a lion, right? We eat lambs, we eat the meat of sheep. That's when, those are one of the livestock animals that people have tended for since time immemorial. 
And so the time will come, the way I read the scriptures is the time will come when people don't eat meat anymore, even though they do today. And while the Lord has not commanded us not to eat meat, although there's some language along those lines in the in the word of wisdom uh, that meat is to be used in time of scarcity, the Lord hasn't said, and the prophets, the modern prophets haven't said, why don't you all stop eating meat? Uh, cut it out. It's It's totally forbidden. It is left up to us to choose. Jesus Christ himself, on at least one occasion, very, very certainly in the scriptures, ate a Passover lamb, and on several other occasions, almost as certainly, he ate meat throughout his life. And so it's not like it is a moral uh, problem. It is just that one day the earth will transcend that law, and we will live in a different state where we no longer obey this. Now, let me back up a little bit. I'm not saying that today... Uh, it is wrong for a person to eat meat. And I'm also not saying that today it would be wrong for us to defend ourselves against violence. After the events of chapter 24, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, we learn that later on they're threatened again, and eventually the Lord says to them, you need to migrate as a people out of this land, or the Lamanites will come in and eventually they'll wipe you out. And so the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they leave, They've already become friends. They've become somewhat allies with the Nephites by this point. And so they migrate, and the Nephites give them a land to live in called the land of Jershon, and they put the anti-Nephi-Lehi's under their protection. Now, when they do this, the, the Lamanites still attack. And at that point, the it is up to the Nephites to defend the new citizens of their lands that they've invited in. And so the Nephites meet the Lamanites with armed resistance. So... If we examine this, there's, there is strong evidence on both sides of what's going on for the rightness of their cause. The, the anti-Nephi-Lehites refuse to take up arms, and it seems to me like they're living a higher law. Nevertheless, if the Nephites hadn't put themselves in between them and their enemies, it would have meant their utter destruction. Now again, on the other hand, if you talk to one of the anti-Nephi-Lehites at that time, they would have told you, it didn't mean our utter destruction at all. We learned their attitude toward death, and their attitude toward death was one of, I don't care at all if I die. I only care if I have this bright sword to show God one day after I die. That, that proves that I never again, after I'd been forgiven, I never again caused my, my soul to be put in jeopardy by engaging in violence. So to me, it just feels like this lesson, today's lesson just feels like one of those wonderful paradoxes that you usually only find in Eastern philosophy, which is on the one hand, the very Christ-like doctrine of turning the other cheek and letting the Lord fight your battles. And on the other hand, the very pragmatic and necessary doctrine of being willing to defend your rights and the freedoms that you love and trusting in the Lord to deliver you, but only after all you can do. And so both of these things are right, and that's where, the, that's where the paradox comes in. And I think it's delightful. I think it's wonderful that we can ask ourselves this question, what is right for me? Uh, so we're going to back up a little bit. I sort of skipped ahead to the end of the lesson. And I want to back up and talk some more about what happened in the short term to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. So there they are, waiting for, in front of this descending army of angry Lamanites. And I don't care how much faith they have, there has to be some fear in their hearts. And... They simply allow these, this army of Lamanites to wade in among them, and they prostrate themselves on the ground, and they're praying to God for deliverance, and these Lamanites come in and start killing them, and they are slaughtering them. They kill over a thousand of them. 
So at this point, I want to point out something that I've already mentioned, which is that it does appear to me that the bulk of the Lamanites have been converted to the worship of God at this point. I don't see any way that there, there could have been so many converts among the Amalekites and the Amulonites that they would have outnumbered everyone else. So this is really interesting, because had the anti-Nephi-Lehi's been willing to take up their weapons again, the way that I read today's lesson is, they would have, they would have had no problem winning this battle and winning the war. Not only that, but they could have utterly wiped out the Amulonites and the Amalekites from the face of the earth. They could have totally exterminated them and never had to deal with them again. And this brings up another interesting question, because had the Lamanites done that, they would have fought and won, but it would have changed them. So this is the perpetual disadvantage of those who believe in Christ and decide to follow him in any conflict, because the tactics of the devil are forever closed to them. We see it today. You know, Christians are the most persecuted minority on earth today. Not a lot of people know that. But around the world, Christians are physically, emotionally, economically, legally persecuted. And even in nations with religious freedom, the kinds of impositions that are made upon Christians are not made upon any other religious group. And the reason for that is because Christians have simply decided that we don't fight back to the same level that other people do. The, the tactics of the devil are not available to us, and therefore we're a target. Well, interestingly enough, in chapter 24, we can see that the work that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's did to transcend their current state of existence and bring themselves onto a higher plane actually works. Because this invading army, after they've killed a mere thousand of them, then they start weeping themselves and they throw down their weapons with disgust and horror at their own actions. And they gained more than a thousand converts on that day, even when they lost that many people among themselves. Now imagine had they gone to war, they would have for sure suffered casualties greater than a thousand people. Even though they would have won the battle and perhaps the war, they would have suffered more. They would have had even more death. And they would have run this spiritual risk of regressing into the ways of violence that they'd known before. But by changing the nature, by, by changing the plane on which they dealt with God and raising themselves to a higher level and in a closer approach to God's own law, then they, not only did they lose fewer people on that day, but they gained a bunch of converts from among their enemies. It was an absolute miracle, and it could not have been foreseen. They only, had, they only could choose in faith, but then afterwards they realized God is capable of doing a lot more than we thought possible. Now in chapter 25, we get a quick cap on the story of the Amulonites. I told you earlier how the story of the Amulonites began, and now... What happens is the, these Lamanites, they're so angry that they've been forced to kill the anti-Nephi-Lehi's that they, take out, they decide to take out their, their anger on some Nephites. We talked a couple of lessons ago about the city of Ammonihah. And if you remember, it was early in the 11th year of the reign of the judges that they were destroyed. And now we see this from the other side. Remember that last, uh, last time we went into a, an extended flashback and even a double flashback. And we're still in the midst of that flashback, and now we finally caught up. 
And we realize that the mission of Ammon and his brethren has taken 10 years. So somewhere in all of the stories that we've been telling, 10 years have gone by. It has taken 10 years for all of these people to be converted, for them to have such a high level of commitment that they refuse to lift up arms even in their own defense, for their enemies to give up on persecuting them and to go off and find the people of Ammonihah. And now the two storylines, the two timelines converge and catch up with each other. And when we see that this is when exactly it happened, now we can put a timeline on the events of Ammon's side, which is 10 years beginning of the 11th year. They go in and they slaughter the people of Ammonihah. And if you remember, they also had some other battles and they took some prisoners and they were trying to make their way back to the lands of the Lamanites. And that's when the Nephite army caught up with them. And during this time, the defeat of the Lamanites was so, you might say, spiritually devastating. It basically taught them that everyone could defeat them. They had been throwing themselves up against the Nephites for so long, and they believed that some great power had been preserving the Nephites, that they could never beat them. And finally, they faced their sinfulness for what it was they had seen among their own people, an example of refusing to engage in constant bloodshed. And once they, once they saw that, they couldn't unsee it. And at the same time, their Amulonite taskmasters continue to egg them on and say, we have to keep persecuting these people. And there were those among the Lamanites in the wilderness who simply refused. And so these Amulonites, who were the descendants of Amulon and the original priests, this had all been foreseen and prophesied by Abinadi. These wicked Amulonites, they put the these repentant Lamanites in the wilderness, they put them to death by fire. And uh, Abinadi's death had been a type and a shadow of this a generation and more before, at least one generation, maybe a generation and a half before this. And the anger of those Lamanites, eventually they woke up and they said, what are we doing? We're listening to these Amulonites rather than taking the side of people that we've seen. Their lives have been better. They've accepted God. We've seen our own fellow soldiers stop their killing and join them. Why are we listening to this? Why are we paying attention? Why are we paying any heed to the word of the Amulonites? And that, the instant they realized that, that was the end of Amulon's seed forever. The, the Lamanites hunted them, and as Mormon puts it, the Amulonites are hunted by the Lamanites to this day. So there may have been some remnant of them that escaped, but basically they never had, they never more figured into the story of the Book of Mormon because the Lamanites never accepted them again. And many of those Lamanites now, that we've had three groups of Lamanites now convert and join the people of Ammon, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they're, they're now so large, I imagine that they would have had no trouble whatsoever in defeating the rest of the Amalekites. Now it's not even Amalekites and Amulonites. It's just Amalekites. There's only one group of Amalekites and whoever they've managed to convert that's still wicked. Everyone else is following the worship of God. The only problem is that the Lamanites have forever put away recourse to the tactics of the devil, and therefore they cannot meet these wicked Lamanites on the same battlefield ever again. One of them fights a spiritual battle only, and the other fights a physical battle only. And so they can never meet fighting together. They can, they can never come together in conflict, because the anti-Nephi-Lehi's no longer speak that language. In the midst of all of this, in chapter 26, we have this wonderful prayer of rejoicing of Ammon. 
and the miracle of salvation is what he's what he's mostly transported by is the miracle of the salvation of the sons of Mosiah himself and his brothers as well as the Lamanites so he he constantly goes back to this idea that it's so miraculous that God would be willing and able to snatch us out of the jaws of hell he is more acquainted than anyone he's as acquainted as anyone could be with how much they deserved nothing at all of themselves and all of us are in this state by the way we we might not have gone about with the sons of mosiah the way alma the younger did to destroy the church of god although some of us may have done that who knows i don't know who's listening but the point is that we all equally deserve to be shut out from god's presence by our own merits And so what Ammon is rejoicing in is how merciful the plan of God truly is. So if you want to understand the mercy of God, this is a wonderful chapter to read. That's chapter 26. It's truly powerful. And at one point, Aaron says, I think, Ammon, I think your your pride, your rejoicing in God has, has carried you away into boasting. And Ammon says, yes, it has, but I'm not boasting of myself. I'm so proud of God. I'm so absolutely blown away by the depth and breadth and height of his mercy that I cannot contain myself. Well, that's a brief interlude. We have another one of those coming up, by the way, but in between we have this chapter 27. The Amalekites are still angry. Uh, The Amalekites have been done away with, but the Amalekites are still angry. And they know at this point that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are not going to fight back, so they come in and they start killing them again. And at this point, they realize, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's realize, we better leave. So they make the difficult decision that they will emigrate to the lands of the Nephites. And this is when, now we finally catch up. We've been in an extended flashback for several chapters. Now we finally catch up to the present day. You remember the the flashback began when Alma encountered the sons of Mosiah in the wilderness. And now as the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are journeying to the land of Zarahemla, that's when we catch up. And the, the occasion is one of utter rejoicing. Ammon is so filled with joy that he loses consciousness. Now, if you remember, he's had this experience on more than one occasion, and he has understood the glory of God so completely that it causes him to lose all of his strength. Later on in chapter 29, Alma would describe this, Alma the Younger would describe this as rejoicing so powerful that it caused his spirit to separate from his body. So we don't know what Ammon is experiencing while he loses consciousness, but we can presume it's a vision of God and God further giving him further knowledge and telling him of the work that he still has for them, for him. And so that's chapter 27 is the, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's making their way into the land of the Nephites. And as I mentioned, they, they're given a land for their inheritance. And I want to read verses 28 and 29 of Alma chapter 27, just so we can understand the attitude that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's had about violence. And it says, And they did look upon the shedding the blood of their brethren with the greatest abhorrence, and they never could be prevailed upon to take up arms against their brethren. And they never did look upon death with any degree of terror. For their hope and views of Christ and the resurrection, therefore death was swallowed up to them by the victory of Christ over it. Therefore they would suffer death in the most aggravating and distressing manner, which could be inflicted by their brethren before they would take the sword or scimitar to smite them. So they would rather die than kill, and that was true no matter what the consequences were. Now, is this better or is this worse? The answer is yes. 
There is no straight answer because the Nephites, as we see, I've, I've mentioned the paradox behind it. The Nephites were necessary to defend them after this point because it was known that they wouldn't defend themselves. Now, our, our world is a fallen world. Violence is one of the one of the facts of a fallen world is that violence is necessary to defend ourselves at times. And yet the anti-Nephi-Lehi has simply decided we don't live in that fallen world anymore. We don't care. No matter what the consequences are, violence is simply not in our toolbox. Now, on the one hand, you could say the Nephites were then necessary to defend you, and had you taken up arms, you could have killed all of your enemies rather than having them continually, continually plague you. And on the other hand, you could say that you had fewer casualties and you made more converts by not fighting than you ever could have by actually taking up arms. And both sides of that argument are 100% right. It's so strange, but there is no resolution to it. It is simply the Christian paradox to understand that one day God is going to change the earth and change all of us, and it's hard to know which needs to come first. Now, when it becomes known to the Amalekites that the Nephites are sheltering the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they are so angry that they march up to war, and it is the bitterest, the bloodiest, the greatest battle in all of Nephite history to that point. The Nephites, now, I think it's worth mentioning, the Nephites are willing to die to protect not only the lives of the people of Ammon, as, as the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are now called, but to protect their right to not fight. The Nephites are selflessly willing to put their own lives in between the Lamanites and these people who now will not fight. And we have this wonderful explanation in chapter 28 of the difference between the death of the righteous and the death of the wicked. And that is from verses 10 through 12. And then in verse 13, we have this amazing summation of exactly the cause of true inequality. Now, there's a lot of talk of inequality in today's world. I want you to hear what the Book of Mormon has to say about it. Verse, uh, this is Alma chapter 28, verse 13. And thus we see how great the inequality of man is because of sin and transgression and the power of the devil, which comes by the cunning plans which he hath devised to ensnare the hearts of men. The struggles of the Nephites are actually quite reminiscent of modern history, especially American history. Now, I know there are many listeners to the podcast who are outside of the United States, but I hope you won't mind if I talk about U.S. history for a brief time. And the reason is this. The Lamanites are now experiencing religious liberty for the first time in a long time, and it has such a transformative effect on their society that they can never go back. They will never be the same. And American history experienced a similar event over the last several hundred years. This country was founded on the idea that they wanted to have religious freedom. The first immigrants to the American continent came because of a desire for religious freedom. And the founding principles of this nation were also rooted in religious freedom. Much has been made, in, in, especially in this last year, in this last few months, of the fact that it wasn't a perfect nation. Now, one of the, the greatest, I shouldn't say one of, the greatest weakness of this early nation, this young nation, was the decision to continue the evil of slavery. And it was an evil that was widespread in the world at that time. It was almost universal. At the same time, I want to read you something from a talk by uh, President Ezra Taft Benson, then president of the church, in October Conference 1987. It's called 
our divine constitution. He says, I desire therefore to speak to you about our divine constitution, which the Lord said belongs to all mankind. That's from DNC 98, verse 5. And should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh according to just and holy principles. That's from DNC 101, verse 77. God said this about the Constitution of the United States. I established the Constitution of this land by the hands of wise men whom I raised up unto this very purpose. President Benson continued, The Constitution of the United States has served as a model for many nations and is the oldest Constitution in use today. So is the United States perfect? Was it conceived in perfection? Are the people, has any of of the men and women who have served it, who have led it, has any of them been perfect? No. But just like the Lamanites, when they experienced religious freedom, changed their entire society forever, the American experiment changed the society, changed Western civilization, and, and from there the world forever. Much of the free nations of the world owe their own freedom, owe the ideas that drove their freedom, to the ideals and principles that were espoused in the American Constitution. And I don't say this because I'm an American. I, I didn't have a hand in the founding of the Constitution. I'm, I, I'm proud of my nation, to be sure, but I'm not proud of it as someone who contributed to it. I'm proud of it because, like Ammon in chapter 26, I can't rejoice in what I've done. I can only rejoice in what God has done. And I can see in human history the gaping jaws of poverty, war, oppression, and terror that have been the norm. And then I see this anomaly, this American experiment, that has brought so many people out of poverty and out of ignorance and out of oppression. And my heart is moved to rejoice in my God because of what he has done for us. And I do see that those ideals have spread around the world, and I rejoice in that as well. Chapter 28 ends with a message that death comes to all. The mourning has a limit, mourning with a U. Mourning has a limit when there is repentance, and it has no limit when there is no repentance. And so we should, what we should fear is not death, but like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, we should fear taking our swords and having them stained with the blood of our brethren when we are forced to appear before our God at the last day. What we want is bright swords. We want our, uh, the symbols, whatever, whatever the metaphor is that describes our repentance, we want our swords to be bright at the last day. And, and that is the cause for true rejoicing, no matter what the end of our mortal life might be. Now, today's lesson ends with one of the most powerful chapters in the Book of Mormon, chapter 29. This is Alma's great psalm that begins, Oh, that I were an angel. And, and what he wants is, he wants to speak with a voice. The voice would, would be like the trump of God. The voice would shake the earth. It would be the voice of thunder. All these are ways in which he has described elsewhere his own experience with the angel that intercepted him along his way. So here's another great paradox. Okay, we talked earlier about the paradox of nonviolence. The Christian paradox that the world is going to change and we're going to change with it, and yet right now we live in a fallen world and we have to act in that way. And, and when does it change? Do we change first or does the world change first? Here's another one. Alma wants himself to be able to intervene like God did with him, and so he wants God to intervene in the lives of everyone. 
He wants an angel to appear to everyone, basically. He wants to be that angel that gets to go to other people who are sinning, who are in the same path that he found himself in that day when he was walking around with the sons of Mosiah seeking to destroy the church, and an angel put himself in his path and would not let him continue. So the question is, when Alma says, I do, I'm a human and I do sin in my wish, is he correct? The question is, was the agency of Alma violated on that day when the angel appeared to him? Did he have an option to continue sinning? And if it was okay for God to send an angel to stop Alma from sinning, then why isn't it okay for God to do that with everyone? Now, we read earlier what Alma did with this experience. When he was leaving the city of Ammonihah the first time, the angel appeared to him and said, Blessed art thou, Alma, because from the time I appeared to you until now, you have been faithful to what you received. And yet, he still finds himself in this tiny minority of people who have experienced a manifestation of an angel in his waking hours and telling him to repent. So I wish I had an answer to this question, but I will accept your answers if you'll email them to me. I would love to hear what you think about this, because it is a powerful paradox, and I'm sure there's a truth buried underneath it. Uh, In fact, I'm sure there are several truths buried underneath it. That is the nature of a paradox, is to reveal the truth, a truth that is hidden. And so, uh, please, give me way in on this question. But the question is, when Alma desires to shout with the trump of God, with a voice like thunder, to shake the earth, isn't he saying, I want to take away the agency of anybody that God would give me the permission to speak to, the same way that my own agency was taken away? Or is he saying, that any time God fails to send an angel to intercept somebody committing sin, then God is not doing everything that he could do for the salvation of that person? Or is there a third option that we're not talking about? So that's an important question, and it's an important chapter. Alma finishes this chapter citing examples from Scripture of times in which the power of God was made manifest in the lives of the people who believed in him, to the point where they were delivered from bondage, rescued from danger, guided to the promised land, either physically or spiritually. And he says, I know if God could do it for them, then he could do it for me. And this is the message for us today. Look, God wants us to have religious liberty and freedom. God has never been a respecter of persons, where he cares about the salvation of one person over another because of the color of their skin. God will send tribulations to us, but it's because he's changing our world and he will transform it completely but not any faster than he can change us. And that's the real message of these wonderful chapters in the Book of Mormon. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.